0: Quiet Herb historian Scott Dyke probably said it best. It all began because of mules. Okay, that's something of an oversimplification, but there is no getting around the fact that the mule incident was what could be considered the first real butting of heads that would eventually lead to a shootout and the deaths of at least eight individuals in coming years. But, like most major incidents in human history that have innocuous beginnings, there was something deeper going on that blew an incident over mules into something much, much bigger. Depending on how you slice it, in the case of Tombstone and the shootout at the OK Corral, there was the mutual loathing between the Republicans and the Democrats, the shared animosity between the Cowboys and the Lawmen, a nearly stolen election, personal rivalries over political office, and finally, because why not… A good, old-fashioned love triangle. Also, just throw in there a healthy dose of ambition, greed, and a whole lot of liquor. So, basically, all that is like a cardboard box full of gasoline-soaked rags with, just because it's a fun metaphor, a small trail of gunpowder leading up to it. And the mules? Well, the mules were just the match that lit that trail of gunpowder that eventually would cause the inferno that managed to burn just about everyone involved. So, let's talk about that, shall we? I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. (music) Episode 86, The OK Corral, Part 4. Mules, Guns, Sex, and Politics. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we spent some time fleshing out the other notable characters in our story, including Wyatt's brothers, Virgil and Morgan. There were more, of course, but those two are gonna be the most prominent. His best friend slash degenerate drunk and gambler, Doc Holliday, and the ambitious slash lecherous lawman, Johnny Behan. And then there are the cowboys who are so often, admittedly for good reasons, painted as the villains in this story. But now that we've introduced them, let's all throw them into the giant blender that is Tombstone. The Earps, in the form of Virgil, Wyatt, their brother James, and their wives, arrived in December 1879, with Morgan drifting down from Montana a few months later. Virgil came with the newly appointed title as U.S. Deputy Marshal, an on-call sort of job with broad parameters to uphold the law and assist county and city law enforcement. James got to work right away in a saloon, while the wives brought in some money sewing and mending the tents that many were still living out of at this point. But Wyatt, well, he didn't have that much in the way of prospects. He had bought a wagon and was fixing to start a stage line based in Tombstone, but when he got there he found two better-funded outfits already in existence, so he quickly gave up on the notion. Like his brothers, he spent some time prospecting, but more with the aim of having someone buy out a promising spot rather than working it themselves. So he did what came natural. He started gambling around Tombstone's various saloons. He would come to have a quarter interest in various faro games, where he would fund the dealers and at the end of the night would take home any proceeds above the dealer's salary. Eventually, he found work writing shotgun for Wells Fargo, which had just opened an office in the boomtown. So, by the summer of 1880, the Earp brothers were all in town making a go at a living when Lieutenant Joseph Hurst rode into Tombstone. And this is where the mules come in. Hurst was from Camp Rucker, about 70 miles to the east, chasing down six mules that had been taken from the fort. Virgil jumped at the chance to form a small posse to help the army recover its property, and Wyatt and Morgan, as well as Wyatt's boss at Wells Fargo, joined in. For the Earp brothers, it was a chance to add something impressive to their local resumes, which could mean career advancement. Local gossip led them to a small ranch outside of Tombstone along Babakamari Creek, owned by the brothers Tom and Frank McLowry. You might want to go ahead and memorize those names. The brothers had drifted to Arizona from Iowa through Texas, looking to cash in on the demand for beef. While not unreconstructed Confederates like some— They did share the broadly democratic view of the time that they wanted to live as far away from government influence as possible. Now, the McLowry's weren't home when the posse showed up, but the mules certainly were. However, Hearst was only interested in getting the army's property back, so before Virgil could make any arrest, he cut a deal with the ranch hands, agreeing that the mules would be returned and no one had to go to jail or make a big fuss over this incident. The Earps were furious. Remember that Wyatt was a really old-school, crack-em-over-the-head type of peace officer, and his brothers weren't the sort of men to let crimes under their jurisdiction slide. Therefore, they must have felt a small bit of schadenfreude when the mules weren't delivered as promised, and Hearst posted notices around Tombstone naming Frank McLarry as their thief. For his part, Frank posted a notice in Tombstone's Nugget newspaper, which leaned Democratic and often sided with the Cowboys, hurling all sorts of insults at Hearst, including that he was a big, fat liar. And Frank took things a step further, threatening Virgil for being part of the posse that rode out to his property. This was something of a mistake on his part as Virgil, like his brothers, was not a man to stand idly by when threatened. He promised that if he ever had a warrant for Frank's arrest, he would carry it out. And when that happened, there would definitely be no deals. Alright, let's fast forward several months to late October 1880, when an incident occurred that brought Wyatt and the Cowboys on yet another collision course. Back during the summer of 1880, Wyatt, who was scraping by financially, accepted the position of Deputy Sheriff for Pima County. Though he had wanted to get out of the law game after leaving Dodge City, he was enticed back both for the pay—sheriffs and their deputies were allowed to keep a portion of the taxes they collected—and because of the opportunity. The sheriff at the time was a Democrat, and Wyatt, a Republican, clearly began thinking about running for the office himself one day. Besides, as I hinted at, everyone just knew that a new county was to be formed, and then it would be time for the territorial administration— a Republican administration, I will add, to appoint new officials. A good turn as deputy sheriff now could easily lead into an appointment if Wyatt played his cards right. Sometime after midnight on October 28th, Wyatt was at his other job, literally playing cards, when shots were heard outside. A group of cowboys had come into town and were having a little bit too much fun, which included shooting some bullets up in the air. That constituted disturbing the peace, so Wyatt, Morgan, and a third man went out to investigate. Town Marshal Fred White also was out and found Curly Bill Brockius, one of the cowboys. Now, author Jeff Gwynn makes the argument that Curly Bill had not been involved in the drunken shooting at the sky, that he had tried to stop it, and that he and a couple others put distance between themselves and the drunks who were causing the trouble. However, it was Curly Bill that White ran into and confronted, telling the cowboy to hand over his gun. Curly Bill was doing just that, but apparently too slow for both White and Wyatt, who was coming up on the scene. Wyatt came up from behind and grabbed Curly Bill, loudly ordering him to give up the weapon at the same time that White grabbed the barrel of the gun. Unfortunately, when the marshal yanked, the gun went off, and a bullet tore through White's groin. The gun was so close that it actually caught White's clothes on fire. While others ran in to help the marshal, White clubbed Curly Bill over the head and dragged him off to jail. White's injuries were too severe and he died just a couple days later. Tombstone paid their popular marshal the ultimate honor. On the day of his funeral, all the gambling halls closed. In the aftermath, the Earps found themselves at the center of politics. Both Virgil and Wyatt were involved in protecting Curly Bill from those who were in the favor of lynching the cop killer and eventually seeing him safely to Tucson, while Virgil would be appointed as a temporary stand-in for White. He would actually run to be the Newtown Marshal in a special election a few weeks later, but lost and fell back to his role as Deputy U.S. Marshal. Meanwhile, Mayor and Epitaph owner John Clum used White's death to begin whipping up political animosity against the Cowboys— read Democrats, and their lawless ways. The affair with Curly Bill and Marshall White came at a critical time, just a few days before the November 1880 elections. In particular, the Pima County Sheriff was up for re-election. The Democratic incumbent, Wyatt's boss appears to have been a go-along-to-get-along sort of guy, which meant keeping the cowboys happy by not interfering with the rustling that kept beef flowing into southern Arizona. But the Republican candidate seemed to be a by the book stickler, definitely not good for cowboy business. After all the politicking was done, the incumbent was declared winner by 42 votes. However, this is the 19th century frontier we are talking about. Say what you will about politics today, but back then, voter fraud, ballot box stuffing, and all sorts of political shenanigans were a fact of life. So, of course, the Republican challenger demanded a recount and that the election be overturned. And, crucially, Republican Wyatt Earp quit his position as deputy to the Democratic incumbent to help with that campaign. At issue was Voting Precinct 27, out in San Simón, which recorded 103 votes for the Democratic candidate and only one for the Republican. The problem was that there were only somewhere around 50 registered voters in that precinct. With how obvious the fraud was, it's amazing to me that they bothered with having someone cast a Republican vote at all. Overseeing the precinct in that election was another name you should remember. Johnny Ringo born in indiana in 1850 ringo was almost born to a life of drifting while still a teenager his family had moved to california but his father had died on the crossing after accidentally shooting himself with his own shotgun ringo drank heavily and had a knack for getting into trouble with the law up to and including a murder charge in texas but curiously enough he also ran for and was elected constable in that same county Still, soon he drifted west and became part of the cowboy outfit that was running the illicit beef in New Mexico and Arizona. One of Ringo's partners in crime, both the rustling and the election tampering, was another name to make a mental note of, Ike Clanton. The Clantons were sort of like the cowboy version of the Earps. Ike and his brothers had come west under the direction of their father and tried to make a go of ranching in southern Arizona in the late 1870s. It didn't take too long for them to fall in with the cowboys and enjoy the mutually beneficial arrangement of suddenly having new heads of cattle magically show up at their place overnight, along with people willing to help brand them. Like all the cowboys, Ringo and Clanton were Democrats, so needed very little incentive to use a little political chicanery to keep the right man in the sheriff's position. But like I said, the Republican candidate challenged the results of the election, but it was his new supporter, one Wyatt Earp, who perhaps held the key to his victory. What follows comes from Stuart Lake's biography of Wyatt, as related by Gwynne, so feel free to take some of this with a giant heaping grain of salt. You see, Curly Bill was still sitting in a Tucson jail, and rumors swirled that the Cowboys would try to break him out any day now. But Wyatt met with Curly Bill and perhaps others to let them know that there was another way of doing things if they were so interested. In short, Wyatt agreed to testify that the shooting of Marshall White had been an accident caused by White's jerking of Curly Bill's gun. If, and only if, the Cowboys agreed to come clean about the election. What we do know for sure is that Wyatt testified on December 27th, 1880 that the shooting had been an accident, and Curly Bill was set free mainly because of that testimony. Then, the very next day, December 28th, one of the cowboys came forward and admitted that he was the fictitious individual that had certified Precinct 27's fraudulent votes, and according to this individual, Ike Clanton had put him up to it. The legal process of actually overturning the election would take months, but it appears that Wyatt's deal had done just what he had intended, if that is indeed what happened. However, it also appears to have done much more than that. The Cowboys, Curly Bill, Johnny Ringo, and Ike Clanton were furious over what had essentially been blackmail on Wyatt's part and retreated back to the tall grass to wait for the right time to strike back. And the spark Moved up the trail of gunpowder just a scooch more. While Wyatt was maneuvering to have his man placed in the county sheriff's seat, he had, as I mentioned, given up his own post as deputy sheriff. The political gears were still slowly overturning the election, so in the meantime, the sheriff filled Wyatt's position with an eager young Democrat who also had his sights set on the top spot one day. None other than... Johnny Bean. Johnny was doing pretty well for himself in town, managing to schmooze just the right amount of people to position himself for his rise up the political food chain once again. And then came the news that everyone had been waiting for. On February 1st, 1881, the territorial legislature split off the eastern end of Pima County and called it Cochise County, after the still somewhat recently departed great and terrible leader of the Chiricahua Apache. By the way, believe it or not, we are only seven years removed from the death of Cochise, which occurred way back in episode 67. But the biggest news came the next day, February 2nd. Tombstone was officially named County Seat. At this news, both Wyatt and Johnny began salivating. Governor John C. Fremont would have to appoint temporary county officials until a regular election could be held In November 1882, Wyatt expected to gain the position for one very important reason. Party. He was a Republican, so was Fremont. He was so attached to the party that he had quit his position as deputy sheriff under a Democrat to ensure that the right man, a Republican, wound up as Pima County Sheriff. Add to that a decent resume in law enforcement, and the former Peoria bummer felt pretty good about his chances. Except he did have some marks against him. First off, he was a known associate of drunken gamblers, looking at you, Doc Holliday, and the fact that Wyatt was not a people pleaser. He didn't shake hands with politicians, he pistol-whipped drunks and cowboys. That stood in stark contrast to everybody's friend, Johnny Bean. Johnny had spent his time in Tombstone wisely, slowly getting the right people to warm up to him, even if he did have the detriment of being a Democrat in a largely Republican-controlled town. Also, he had a law enforcement career that matched, if not exceeded, Wyatt's, including time spent as an actual sheriff before. He did have a fair number of scandals in his past, but isn't that why he had come to this boom town in the middle of nowhere, somewhere far enough from the chattering classes who remembered his indiscretions? During all of this, Johnny actually approached Wyatt with a deal. Despite their differences, Johnny claimed that he saw a great use for a dedicated, tough lawman like Wyatt. So he promised that if he was appointed, he would turn around and appoint Wyatt as his deputy, with some additional tax collection duties so Wyatt could reap some of the benefits of being sheriff. Now, Scott Dyke claims that the deal was mutual, that Wyatt promised the same thing to Bean. Here's the kicker if that was true, Wyatt had every intention of keeping his word. But in either scenario, Johnny didn't. Due to political machinations and the strikes against Wyatt, Bean was appointed sheriff, and then turned right around and named the pro Democratic editor of the Tombstone Nugget newspaper his deputy. And that's how, in one stroke, Johnny earned the enmity of not just Wyatt, but the entire Earp clan. It didn't help either that he instantly got cozy with the Cowboys, preempting any problems by making a very astute political move. Bean had a deputy approach none other than Curly Bill with a proposition. That Curly Bill, as one of the leaders of the Cowboys, help him collect taxes from them. The deputy made the argument that he was afraid that he'd be jumped for the taxes he collected if he went alone, but if Curly Bill went with him, they could get the cowboys to pay up. In return, there was some intimation that if any of the cowboys were ever arrested, things would go better for them if they were on the books as full taxpayers. This arrangement led to a boom of tax collection and put the cowboys in Johnny's pocket, but it did nothing for him with the Republican opposition. Clum and the epitaph blasted off editorial after editorial, excoriating him. But really, they were going to do that anyway. As you can imagine, this agreement with the cowboys really made Wyatt loathe Johnny even more than he already did. But what may have driven the final wedge between the two men was not the politics or the lying or the shady dealings. It was a woman. Josephine Sarah Marcus was born in either 1860 or 1861, and depending on when you caught her, she was either from New York, St. Louis, or Germany. She was a complicated and colorful woman who, in the words of Gwyn, spent most of her later years concocting G-rated fables to conceal her R-rated escapades as a young woman. Her middle-class family at some point had relocated from New York to San Francisco, where her father was a baker. In 1879, a touring production of Gilbert and Sullivan's HMS Pinafore came to town, and Josephine, who was always described as being incredibly attractive, was urged to audition to join the troupe. Without her parents' knowledge or permission, she did just that, and left with the production to the edge of civilization, otherwise known as Arizona. In the territory, we have records of the troupe performing in Tucson in early 1880, possibly brought in by the future mayor of Tombstone, John Clum, and other civic-minded folks. Another stop was, of course, the territorial capital at Prescott, which is where she met Johnny Bean, recently returned from his self-imposed exile in Mojave County and hoping to regain his reputation. As I mentioned before, Johnny, despite his marital status, had a soft spot for women, and that went double for a young, extremely attractive, exotic actress like Josephine. Their fling should have ended when the troupe moved on from Prescott and Josephine later returned to San Francisco, either because she'd gotten ill or because her family tracked her down and paid her to return. But Johnny was smitten and wrote her letter after letter, possibly even going to San Francisco once and professing undying love and a desire to get married. At least that's Josephine's story. According to her G-rated version, Johnny simply wore her down with his desire for her to be his bride. Bean didn't write his side down, so there's no saying how close to the truth Josephine's version is. However, we do know that she arrived in Tombstone around October 1880 in a stage that had none other than Morgan Earp riding shotgun to it. Josephine would later say that she stayed in the home of a married couple under strictly chaperone conditions while she waited for Johnny to make an honest woman out of her. But in reality, she moved in with Bian right away, no doubt coming up with some very inventive excuses to tell his young son, who was also in the house. However, she soon grew impatient because Johnny refused to uphold his end of the bargain and, you know, actually marry her. Now, Johnny's motivations are a little muddled. He was seeking high political office, so being actually legally wed instead of having a common law wife would have made more sense for his political ambitions. And Josephine was not only a former actress, a profession which often was synonymous with being a prostitute, she had the further strike against her of being Jewish. Beyond that, she had a personality that we today would call high-maintenance, and was not above using any tactic to get what she wanted. Gwyn speculates that Johnny lived with her for all the pleasurable benefits, but also to be able to parade around town with her, much the same way that a rich man today would flaunt having a supermodel or a Playboy bunny on his arm. When she attempted to write her memoirs, decades later, Josephine would absolutely stymie those helping her because she would not disclose anything about her life in Tombstone. This could naturally be because she was an unwed lady living with a man who refused to marry her but also because of what happened when she tired of Johnny's forever unfulfilled promise to get her to the altar. The only thing she would say is that she, gasp caught Johnny in the arms of another woman, and that was the last straw for her. To be fair, it's entirely possible that's true, because you may have noticed that Johnny and Fidelity had never formerly been introduced, but it's more than likely that she could have overlooked his habitual adultery if he had actually done as he promised. According to Gwen, in the summer of 1881, she was contacted by her parents, who sent her $300 to help her move back to San Francisco. She would later claim that Johnny talked her into using this money to buy a house, and once that was ready, the marriage would take place, something that, again, gasp, never happened. Take that whole story with a grain of salt, but the reality is that in the summer of 1881, she broke up with Johnny Bean for good and became a free agent in Tombstone. And for this newly single young woman, what could be more delicious than finding a new love, and one that would infuriate the man who refused to marry her to boot? So she turned her attention to the one man that would cause the most potential for Johnny to go ballistic, Wyatt Earp. Now, it should be said that Wyatt himself was a handsome man. He is described by John Clum as being over six feet tall, well-attired, and well-proportioned. Bat Masterson added that Wyatt was in the neighborhood of 160 pounds of nearly pure muscle. In addition, Wyatt had piercing blue eyes, a fashionable drooping mustache that framed sharp cheekbones, and a prominent chin. Add to the fact that he was Johnny Bean's rival, and it was so much sweeter for Josephine. There was only one teensy-weensy problem. Wyatt, you may remember, was married he had his common-law wife, Maddie, you know, somewhere in the back. But that didn't stop Josephine. Which I think really gives you an insight into her character. She claimed to have broken up with Bean because she had caught him with another woman, but she had no compunctions about stealing someone's common-law husband. There's a reason that, in her twilight years, Josephine would insist very strongly to Stuart Lake that both she and Maddie be left out of his account of Wyatt's life. Now, just to clarify, it's it's hard to say just what kind of relationship blossomed between Wyatt and Josephine during the latter half of 1881. There are reasons to suspect that they hooked up, as the kids say these days, during this time period, but we can't know for certain. As I mentioned, Josephine did her level best to expunge this time from the history books. And what we can say is that Josephine returned to San Francisco at the end of 1881— and that Wyatt stayed in Tombstone following the shootout at the Old K Corral, which I swear we will actually talk about soon. He would continue living with Maddie through the spring of 1882, when she was hustled off to California along with his brother's wives for safety. However, that would be the last time Maddie ever saw Wyatt. By the end of 1882, he was in San Francisco, where he and Josephine publicly became a couple. The pair would spend nearly 50 years together, which would be very tale esque if it wasn't for this scandalous start. On the upside for Josephine, however, was that her flirtations with Wyatt did drive an even deeper wedge between him and Bean, And the fire moved down the trail of gunpowder that much more. And that's where I want to leave things this week, with all the players starting to circle around each other Looking for the right time to strike. So, join me next week when the fuse finally hits that large cardboard box full of gasoline soaked rags, and we watch as the investigation into a stagecoach robbery led to one of the most infamous 30 seconds in Arizona, not to mention American history. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ The History of Arizona. Goodbye.